Well, good morning again. It's always great to be worshiping with you all, and it's great to be able to proclaim God's Word to you. It's a privilege and a joy to get to do that. This morning, we're continuing our Lenten series where we've been looking at several habits of the Christian life. So far, we've talked about the habits of corporate worship, of hearing and doing God's Word, and then last week, of fighting temptation. These habits that are our day in and day out work and fight and joy as Christians. Today we're going to look at Luke 11, and we're going to see what Jesus teaches his disciples about the habit of prayer. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Luke 11. But before we hear from God's word, let's go to him in prayer and ask that he would bless our hearing and doing of his word. Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask that you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know and trust your Son, Jesus Christ, better. Give us humility as we hear your perfect word, that we would submit ourselves to the truth. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Luke Chapter 11, and we're going to begin in verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, Though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is the word of the Lord. This passage begins with one of the most honest interactions we see between Jesus and his disciples in the Gospels. We don't know how the scene begins, whether Jesus is off away from his disciples praying and they see him, or if he is in the midst of them praying and they are listening to his prayers. But either way, the disciples are struck by the prayer life of Jesus. And so they very honestly ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, immediately this confronts our understanding of prayer already. I'm afraid that if someone were to ask that question today, the response they would probably receive is, 
you don't need to be taught how to pray. It's easy. It's just like talking to a friend. You just start talking, saying whatever's on your mind. And that's something that you don't need to be taught how to do. And there is a thread of truth in that. God doesn't have some magic formula that he expects of us. There isn't an incantation or a correct pronunciation of words that he requires for us to pray to him. So in a sense, you don't need a bunch of technical instruction on how to pray. As Psalm 62 says, you simply pour out your heart to God. However, Jesus doesn't respond to his disciples' request by saying, No, silly, don't you realize you already know how to pray? You just start talking. It's that easy. No, he actually answers their question. He actually does teach them how to pray. This tells us something. This tells us that we actually need to know something to know how to pray correctly or to know how to pray better. Jesus actually answers their question. We ought to be comforted by that. These are the disciples of Jesus. These are men who have been walking with Jesus, learning from him day in and day out, and eventually they will become the apostles of the church, and they need help praying. Whether you became a Christian this week or you have been walking with Jesus for 60 years, you probably need help praying. And who better to help us than Jesus himself? Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray in this passage in two ways. First, in verses 2 through 4, he teaches what to pray for. And then in verses 5 through 13, he teaches them what kind of God they're praying to. And I think these two teachings of Jesus correspond to two mistakes that we make when we think about the God that we are praying to. When you pray, you are likely tempted to imagine God in two different ways. The first way is like a genie. Whether you grew up watching I Dream of Genie, or you've read Arabian Nights, or your idea of a genie comes from watching Aladdin, the same idea of a genie persists. What is a genie? A genie is someone who gives you whatever you want. So think about Aladdin. How does the genie respond when Aladdin makes a request? Your wish is my command. He gives him whatever he wants. He doesn't try to change you or correct you. They simply give you whatever you desire. You lay out your wishes And bam, you get what you want. That's how a genie works. The other way that we're tempted to think about God when we pray is like a character from the 90s sitcom Seinfeld. So if you're not familiar with the show, there's a character in one of the episodes who owns a soup store. Everyone knows him for his amazing soup, but they also know him for how mean and irritated he is to the point that if you come to order soup from him and you don't order it correctly he responds with no soup for you and throws you out of his store many of us are tempted to think of God in this way when we pray 
we assume he doesn't really want to give us what we've asked for. He's easily irritated with us, and he's just looking for an excuse to yell no and turn us away. So we cower in prayer, and we sweat over whether we are saying each phrase and word the correct way. Or most likely, we just don't pray. In his teaching, Jesus is going to confront both of these misunderstandings of the God who we are praying to. We'll begin with verses 2 through 4. He's going to confront this view of a genie, and he's going to give us the correct view of God. So look with me at what he says in verses 2 through 4. And he, that's Jesus, he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Now, this is a version of the Lord's Prayer. The fuller and more recognized version of the Lord's Prayer is found in Matthew 6. If you remember back to last spring, Brandon preached through the Lord's Prayer. So we're going to look at it very briefly here, but if you want a fuller look at it, go back and listen to those sermons, or you can come on Tuesday night to the men's Bible study, if you're a man, and uh, join Rick as they go through the questions in the shorter catechism on the Lord's Prayer. It just so happens that that's what they're studying this week. So if you want to look at it more, please join them. But here, we see the Lord's Prayer, and if you've been in church a long time, you've heard this a lot, especially if you've been in a church like ours that prays this prayer every week, it can seem pretty normal to you. But I want us to see how much this prayer confronts us in our thoughts about God. The prayer begins with a request that God's name be hallowed. That word hallowed is uh, connected to the root of the word holy or sanctify. We're praying that God's name would be regarded as holy We don't want God to be cursed or blasphemed or taken lightly, either by us or in the world around us. And so we ask that God would give glory to his name, that people around us and us would regard him as the king of the universe that he truly is. That's what we're praying when we pray that God's name would be hallowed. So we ask that God would do that more and more. Now, does that sound like the kind of thing that you would ask a genie to do? No. What do you ask a genie for? You ask a genie for a million dollars, or a new car, or the ability to fly. You ask them for something selfish, for your own desires, something that you want. So as Jesus teaches us to pray, he is actually teaching us to want the right things. He is teaching us something about our desires. He's conforming them to God's will, even as he teaches us to pray. You want a million dollars? Jesus is teaching you that wanting God's name to be regarded as holy is more important than that. You want to succeed at work and you want people to appreciate you? Jesus is teaching you that wanting his kingdom to come on earth is better for you than that. 
You want your savings to grow and balloon so that you don't have to worry anymore. Jesus is teaching you that relying on God for your daily necessities, your daily bread, is better for you than that. You want your body to stop being in pain. Jesus is teaching you that having your sins forgiven is more of a joy and comfort than that. You want God to crush your enemies and make them suffer. Jesus is teaching you that wanting forgiveness for them is far better both for them and for you. You want to satisfy every desire that pops up inside of you. Jesus is teaching you that your desires are very frequently harmful to you and that you ought to want to avoid those evil things, those temptations that draw you in so frequently. Do you see how God is different than a genie? He is better than a genie. He doesn't just give you whatever he wants. He tells us to come to him honestly in prayer, to pour out our hearts before him, but he also tells us that our desires are not what they should be. He doesn't teach us some magic formula to get what we want. He teaches us what we should actually want. These things, says the one who created you and created your hearts and created your longings and your desires, these things are actually what is best for you. These things will satisfy your deepest longings. These things are what you ought to focus yourself on in prayer. These are what you ought to long for. So that's the first thing that he teaches. He teaches us what we should be praying for. In the second half of this passage, Jesus continues teaching on prayer, but he does it in a very different way than he did it in the first half. Rather than focusing on what we should say when we pray, he begins to focus on how we think of or perceive God when we're praying. Particularly, he, focused on how, he focuses on how we think about God's willingness to hear us and respond to our prayers. We're going to read verses 5 through 13 again, but before we do, I want to point out something to you. This, this little parable, this little story in verses 5 through 8 is taken a lot of different ways by interpreters and by faithful interpreters. Some say that this is persistence in prayer. That's what it's teaching. Some say that this is teaching boldness, almost a brashness in prayer and coming to God. I'm going to take it a little bit differently, but I want you to know that those things are taught elsewhere in Scripture. Luke 18 explicitly teaches in the parable of the woman being persistent in asking for justice, that we ought to be persistent in our prayer life, asking God again and again and again that he would respond. Hebrews 4 teaches, because Christ is our high priest, that we ought to have boldness and confidence coming before the throne of grace to help. So even as we take this differently, as I think that this is talking about God's character, I want you to know that those other things are taught in Scripture. So I don't want you to hold the interpretation that I'm giving you too strongly. With that, though, let's hear what Jesus has to say. This is in verse 5, and then we'll go through verse 13. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, 
lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut. and My children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who, knock, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now Jesus asks two questions in this passage. They aren't just regular questions. They're a particular kind of question that Jesus asks throughout the Gospels, but He especially asks in Luke's Gospel. It is a who among you question where he asks, who among you is like this? A great example of that is in Luke 14. Jesus says, who among you, or which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? What's the answer? No one. No one would do that. No one would start building a tower without thinking about whether they have enough money to finish it. Jesus asks this kind of a question 11 times in Luke, and every single time, the obvious answer, either explicitly or implicitly, is no one. What kind of a person would do that? No person. And then Jesus takes that obvious answer and uses it to teach us something. So here, he asks two of those questions. The first in verses 5 through 7 and the second in verses 11 through 12. The first who among you question is rather long. He asks if anyone among them has a friend who would refuse to give them bread if they came banging on the door in the middle of the night. If you have your Bibles open, you'll see that the question mark ends that question at the end of verse 7. That whole story is a question. Who among you would be like that? And the obvious answer is no one. No one is that mean that they would would not give that person what they were asking for. Jesus even says, even if they're not giving it to you because they're your friend and they like you, just because of your impudence or your shamelessness or your rudeness, he would respond. In other words, he would at least give you bread to get rid of you. So the question, do you know anyone mean enough to not respond to that kind of a request? The answer is no. We don't know anyone like that. The second question is about fathers. He asks if there are any fathers among them that are so mean that if their son or daughter asked for a fish, they would give them a snake instead. Or if they asked for an egg, the father would give them a scorpion to eat. Is there anyone among you like that? Of course not. No one is that cruel to their own children. And so Jesus uses both of these stories, both of these questions to set us up. 
He gets us to answer and to look around like he's crazy for even asking the question. No way. No one is that mean or cruel to their friends or their children. Of course, they would give them what they were asking for. And then Jesus turns to us and says, if it's so obvious that no human would respond like that, then why do you think God, your heavenly Father, would respond to you like that? See, Jesus knows what none of us want to admit. He knows that the fact that we don't pray isn't really about us not having enough time. It's not primarily that we don't know what to say. We don't pray to God because we're scared that God's not good. We're scared that He is going to be cruel to us in response to our requests. And so we don't ask because we don't want our prayers to be rejected. We know that these two questions are about prayerlessness because of what Jesus says between the two questions in verses 9 and 10. Look with me at them. In the middle of the two, he says, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. These are three commands. Ask. Seek. Knock. These are three pictures of prayer. That we are begging for help from God. He's commanding us, come to Him. Come to God. James, Jesus' brother, says this a bit more bluntly in his book. In James chapter 4, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. If only you would ask, you would have the help that you need. But instead, you sit there and you don't ask, James says. You don't get help from God that you know that you need. Why don't you ask? Why don't you come to Him for help? Jesus says in these two questions that it's because you think He's like the soup vendor from Seinfeld. He's got really good stuff, and you want it, but in your heart you know He doesn't want to give it to you. And so He's going to find some excuse to say no and to turn you away. Brothers and sisters, we do not pray to a God like that. Brandon preached last week from James 1. Listen to James 1, verses 16 and 17. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers or my beloved family. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Do not be deceived. The good things that you have in your life, your family, your job, your friends, your character traits, your kindness and your intellect, your salvation, everything you can imagine, every good and perfect thing, not one of them is due to your hard work. Not one of them is due to some principle of karma operating in the universe. Not one of them is due to chance. James says that every good thing you have is a gift from your heavenly Father. 
He knows how to give you good things. His goodness is inexhaustible. Isaiah 55, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Jesus has just told us in Luke 11 that even evil fathers know how to give good gifts to their children. How much more, he asks, your Father who is in heaven. God's goodness is as much better than our goodness as the heavens are higher than the earth. His compassion is not just a little bit more than ours. No, it is infinitely greater than our compassion. His mercy, His kindness, His love, all of these characteristics of God are complete and full in Him. They go further than we can even imagine. Psalm 103 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. Part of your hesitancy in coming to God, part of your distrust in His goodness, may be that you know your sins. You know that you are double-minded. You know that you are often lukewarm in your devotion to Him. You know that you have done things that are against God's good law. And so you think, God's going to repay me according to what I deserve. He won't give me good gifts because I don't deserve them. Why bother asking? Sister, brother, did you hear the words of the psalmist in Psalm 103? Listen to verse 10 again. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Why not? For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't deal with you according to your sins because He has dealt with Jesus according to your sins. They have been paid for. They have been forgiven. His love and His goodness and His kindness are so great toward you that He sent Jesus, His Son, into the world that He might take your sins on Himself and bring you to God. Brothers and sisters, this is the knife that cuts through all our doubts about the goodness of God toward us. Listen to Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? 
This is a logical argument from the greater to the lesser. God gave up his very own son for you. There can be no greater gift. So how could we possibly doubt that he will give us lesser good gifts with Jesus? We don't pray to a genie who grants our every whimsical wish. We don't pray to an irritated and angry man who really wants to withhold good things from us. We pray to our good and compassionate and loving Heavenly Father who knows how to give good gifts to his children. This is how Jesus teaches us to pray. Would you all pray with me? Father in heaven, too often we come to you without believing that you are good. Too often we don't come to you because we don't believe that you are good. Forgive us. Show us afresh your goodness. Give us hearts that desire and long for the things that are indeed good gifts. And so we pray, give us your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, renew our hearts and our minds and our wills into the image of Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.